And welcome to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on this episode, we're going to take a look at the dark age of American soccer. That would be from 1950 until 1990, a 40-year time period in which the U.S. consistently failed to make it to the World Cup. Until, on a fateful day in November 1989 in Port of Spain, Trinidad, Paul Caligiuri cracked a left-footed volley from 30 yards out to give the United States a win and send them to the World Cup for the first time since 1950. It was a hell of a strike. You should definitely go watch it. The victory set the stage for seven straight appearances at soccer's biggest event prior to the disaster in Cuba in 2017, but we don't need to get into that because I do not need an immediate migraine. Instead, I want to take a look back at that gap in the timeline and explore seven reasons, or my seven reasons, why the United States failed to make the World Cup. To do so, let's go back to 1950, or the 1950 World Cup more specifically. By the standards of most tournaments, it was not an exceptional competition for the U.S. They finished bottom of their group with a negative four goal difference. They lost 3-1 to one to Spain, 5-2 to Chile. However, they finished bottom due to that goal difference. England and Chile were both level on points, and the United States handed England a shock 1-0 defeat. So not exactly winning the entire tournament, but the stage seemed set for the U.S. to move on to bigger and better things, or at least that's what I always assumed. I always assumed that it was like 1950, we did okay, then we built from there and it should have been great and it wasn't. Reading a bit more about that tournament, I think we have our first answer for where things went wrong, which is simply that qualification got much more difficult. The 1950 World Cup was the first one after the end of World War II. Uh, The competition was obviously suspended as the war was raging. Once it calms down, we have our first competition in 1950. There are 16 teams involved, the host Brazil, the defending champion Italy, and then 14 other teams, seven from Europe, six from the Americas, one from Asia. So right there, six spots for the Americas, not all to CONCACAF, not all to the North American Confederation, but a decent number of spaces, a lot of those coming because of the countries that were not there. Germany and Japan, not involved for reasons. Iron Curtain countries refused to participate, so no Soviet Union. Uh, 1934 finalist Czechoslovakia, not there. 1938 finalist Hungary, not there. Yugoslavia, the only Eastern European country to compete. Uh, And then if you look at other nations not there, you could almost create a stronger competition from the teams who didn't participate. You've got Argentina, Ecuador, and Peru from South America, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Burma from Asia, meaning India qualified without having to play a single game, Austria and Belgium with through, which meant that Turkey and Switzerland got to go automatically. Zero African countries applied to compete. Not sure if that says more about the state of soccer at that time or the state of FIFA, but it's basically like for that 1950 tournament, they were trying to find teams that could go. You didn't have a difficult, challenging campaign that weeded out all the rest to give you the best. It was basically, we need teams to compete. Who can get there? You can get there. You're in. So that's for 1950. For the 1954 World Cup, things have started to change. The hosts Switzerland qualify automatically, so too do the defending champions Uruguay, but that leaves 14 spaces again. This time, the divisions are slightly less favorable to the Americas. Of those 14 remaining places, 11 go to Europe, which includes at that time Egypt, Turkey, and Israel. Two go to the Americas, one goes to Asia. So now instead of six places going to North and South America, we have two, one spot for South America, one spot for North 
South America, contested between Mexico, the United States, and Haiti. From this point on, with the exception of 1970, there is only one spot available to North American teams until 1982, which leads to the second problem that the United States experienced, which was Mexico, specifically Mexico being Good. From 1950 until 1970, Mexico qualified for six out of six World Cups. In 1954, the USA was able to handle Haiti in qualification. They won both of those games, but then they got stomped by Mexico 7-1 to one over two legs. Mexico finished qualifying with four wins in four games and a goal difference of plus 18. That sort of became the norm. Basically, it was Mexico qualify with relative ease and then don't do much when it comes to the actual World Cup. They only made it out of the group stage once in those six times they qualified, but they were comfortably the dominant force in North America all the same. In 1958 qualifying, Mexico topped their first round group ahead of Canada and then the United States, the USA finishing bottom, losing all four games, conceding 21 goals. That would be a problem these days. The USA fared slightly better in 1962, picking up a point off Mexico in a 3-3 draw. Still finished second due to an away loss to Mexico. Worth noting, Canada withdrew from qualifying, so the United States finished second of two that time round. For the most part, it was basically consistently being placed into a first-round group with Mexico that caused the U.S. problems, even when qualification changed to we have regional groups, the winners of those groups then play each other in a larger cup competition, the precursor to the hex, Mexico going into the same group as the United States and usually Canada or Haiti basically meant the United States would, no matter what, end up playing Mexico, likely lose, and then that was it for them. Ed Farnsworth wrote a nice piece on this topic for the Philly soccer page. Here's a good excerpt that explains things concisely. Quote, During the period between the 1950 and 1990 World Cups, the United States managed a 1-10-3 record. Should note that's one win, 10 losses, 3 draws. Record against Mexico being outscored 13 goals to 44. If the U.S. had had to play against Mexico for the 1970 and 1986 World Cup qualifiers, for which Mexico automatically qualified as host country, Country, that record would have been even worse, end quote. That is definitely true. I agree with Ed. When the United States did eventually qualify in 1990, Mexico had already been disqualified from that competition for fielding overage players at the 1988 CONCACAF U-20 tournament. So when the United States does eventually qualify, at least some of it is because Mexico was not allowed to participate. And that feels relevant because I would say a third explanation for the U.S.'s failure to compete at the World Cup would be that even when Mexico did have downturns in form, other nations stepped up, specifically other nations that were not the United States. From 74 to 1990, Mexico only made it to the World Cup twice in 1978 and 1986, and again, they hosted that 86 competition. It seems like this would have been the logical time for the U.S. to step up, but no. Instead, Haiti, Honduras, El Salvador, and Canada took those spots. Even when Mexico hosted the 1970 World Cup and a second spot was opened up, El Salvador staked their claim. Haiti eliminated the United States from that competition. When Mexico failed to qualify for the expanded tournament in 1982, it was Honduras and El Salvador who went in their place. Canada topped the first group stage with Mexico second and the United States third. So the basic takeaway is that once the qualification format became more rigid and less which countries are actually able to send a team, uh, the United States struggled while other teams invested in their national teams. Once there was only one spot up for grabs, it became a meritocracy, and the United States wasn't doing much to merit consideration. 
But why is that the case? We sort of talked about other teams, what other national teams were doing, format changes, qualification complications, but we haven't really taken a look at what was going on in the United States and with soccer in this country during this time period, which is what we're going to do next. But first, a word from today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN would once again like to remind you that your internet service provider can see Every site you've ever visited. I will pause for the ramifications of that to hit home. Even if you use incognito mode, even if you clear your history, regardless of which provider you use, that history sticks around. But your solution is ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes and encrypts your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see those sites you visited, which I really do appreciate for obvious reasons. But then there's also the idea that, like, I don't need Verizon to know how much time I spend reading about soccer in the 1950s. They don't need to know how dorky I truly can be when it comes to these types of things. So you can use ExpressVPN to do your research discreetly and not get made fun of for being a soccer hipster. But my neuroses aside, there are other more concrete reasons to appreciate ExpressVPN. It protects 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, runs seamlessly in the background with no lagging or buffering, and is very easy to use. I can attest to that because I am not particularly tech-savvy, but I could make it work very easily. So go to expressvpn.com soccer, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Again, that's expressvpn.com soccer, E-X-P-R-E-S ssvpn.com slash soccer to get three months additional on a one-year package. Thank you very much to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of Soccer 101 and appreciating my soccer nerddom. Now let's get back to some reasons for why the United States failed to make an appearance at the World Cup for 40 years. We've talked about the external factors. Now let's look inside the United States and let's talk money. Always a big one. For much of its history, the organization in charge of soccer in America lacked funding. A note on that organization for a moment. Before settling on the U.S. Soccer Federation in 1974, the body in charge of the sport in this country was initially known as the United States of America Football, two words, association, at its founding in 1913. And that was then changed to the United States. States Soccer Football Association in 1945. When we first started the Total Soccer Show back in 2009, our original name, for those who don't remember, which is most people, was the Total Football Soccer Show. We persisted in that name for about a year, maybe, before realizing it was very, very confusing. We could have known that already if we'd paid attention to our history. Back to the financial issues facing the Federation, here's another excerpt from Ed Farnsworth. Quote, From its founding in 1913 through the 1950s, teams were made up of players from the East Coast and Midwest on the basis of geographical convenience. Funds were simply not available to pay for the travel and living expenses of players from the West Coast. When money was not immediately available for participation in international tournaments such as the Olympics and the World Cup, Federation officers often had to donate their own money or had to strong-arm Federation members into making donations, end quote. So that East-West rivalry that we all totally knew began with Biggie Tupac. It actually extends to West Coast players not being allowed to play for the national team way back when. I'm sure that's what it was. So you have financial restrictions sort of limiting what you're able to do as a federation, the amount you're able to pay people, the amount you can invest in the development of the game. But then there's also an idea that does kind of persist to this day. There's an idea of global bias. The federation was 
heavily reliant on Western European coaching influences. Take a look at the names you most identify with the NASL, which was one of the country's two dominant professional leagues in the air that we're talking about. Uh, Pele and Carlos Alberto aside, you've got George Best, you've got Franz Beckenbauer, you've got Eusebio, you've got Johan Cruyff. There are a lot of Europeans there. Then as now, we weren't actually looking at the countries in our region and seeing what they were doing. We were trying to take European stars and tactical preferences and cram them into an American sports setting. And I do think that sort of explains the ideas that were going into the national team, but not necessarily the players that were going into that national team. And that's where FIFA plays a role, though in this case, not for negative reasons, but more so logical ones. Prior to the increased regulations that we're going to talk about, it was much more common for players to represent multiple nations. Alfredo De Stefano notably ma- uh, managed to play for three different countries, Argentina, Colombia, and Spain. Luis Monti managed to play for Argentina in one World Cup and Italy in another. That's not too bad. When the U.S. upset England in 1950, Joe Gaichen scored the winner, having previously played for Haiti at international level. Although he was not yet a United States citizen, Gaichen had declared his intention of becoming one. And under the rules of the United States Soccer Football Association, at that time, he was allowed to play. However, Gaichen never actually got his American citizenship, instead returned to his native Haiti, and played for their national team again. So it's worth keeping all that in mind because that was for 1950. In 1954, he might not have been able to play for the U.S. In qualifying for the 54 World Cup, situations like the one with Gaichen led to Mexico insisting the U.S. abide by FIFA regulations, stipulating that only native-born or naturalized citizens were eligible to be selected for a national team. This was a problem. The United States were not able to finalize their roster until two days before qualifying began. That would be the two games I mentioned earlier, in which the United States lost by a combined 7-1 to scoreline. So we can then see how if you're moving away from players who aren't yet American citizens or you have questions about their nationality and instead you're looking towards Europe, specifically Western Europe, for your inspiration, you do then as a federation sort of become blind to lots of available talent out there or lose the ability to bring that talent in. And to some extent, when you move away from dual nationals, when you focus on specific areas of the world for your inspiration, you can kind of see the bias that we see today. It just becomes a little bit more clear. So to reset if we're looking at reasons why the United States failed to play in a World Cup for 40 years. Uh, We can point to number one, qualification becoming harder. Number two, Mexico being very good. Number three, on the few occasions that Mexico is not very good, other teams instead of the United States stepped up to fill that void. The fourth would be money or lack thereof. The fifth would be limitations on the players that the United States could call in, as well as self-limitations in terms of the way they were trying to get those players players who they did call in to play. So we've gone through five. Now let's talk about, not surprisingly, a lack of leadership. Things did improve from a general perspective for the national team, though they still weren't qualifying for the World Cup, but they got progress like in 1966. There was the first time there was adequate preparation for qualifying. There was a 12-day training camp in Bermuda with four warm-up games. So we're starting to realize that you got to give these players some time to figure things out and figure each other out. In 1970, players start to get more fairly compensated. One more time from Ed Farnsworth. 
quote, players were paid a weekly wage of $75 and given a modest stipend, a vast improvement over the 1966 qualification campaign when Alex Ely had to borrow $10 from the Federation in order to get home to Philadelphia after the team returned from Mexico to New York. Uh, Here's a quote from him. When they asked for the money back, Eli later recalled, I couldn't take it anymore. I was so disgusted. I left the country. A A double end quote on that one. 1970 was also the first time the squad was selected by the coach instead of committee. Yes, that is correct. It used to be selection by committee, which maybe we should go back to. Probably not, though. I don't think Greg Berhalter would like that. The reason for this is pretty straightforward. There was routinely no one in charge long enough to make squad selections. When the Federation appointed Walt Chizowick before the 1978 World Cup qualifiers, he was only the second full-time coach in the history of the Federation. And not surprisingly, that lack of leadership and overall managerial permanence started at the top. The Federation, early on, chose to prioritize success at the Olympics over success at the World Cup. More people knew what it was, it was easier to promote, and you occasionally got the chance to humiliate the Soviet Union without actually having to fight them, which was always a plus. The decision, though, meant that the money they did have, soccer in this country did have, went to funding Olympic preparation and competition, hence the lack of funds and why players had to find creative ways to finance their own travel for national team duty. Secondly, it meant that with the Federation focused on the Olympic team, they left it up to largely the American Soccer League to figure out the World Cup team and the roster for qualification. And the American Soccer League at this point was semi-professional at best. So we have a lack of central oversight or collective vision for developing the sport as a whole. And it's therefore not really ever going to happen. Instead, it's always going to be piecemeal. It's always going to feel a little bit fly by night as the league would naturally be focused on self-preservation and signing some of those big names I mentioned previously. Because as we move towards the NASL, that becomes the focus. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this is a little bit like if U.S. soccer had handed control of the men's national team currently to Don Garber, who then only picked the players from MLS that gave the team the best optics. I'll now pause for a moment so you can craft your own joke about that yourself. But with that as a backdrop, the United States missed nine straight World Cups between 1950 and its eventual qualification for the 1990 tournament. During that same time period, the U.S. qualified for six of ten Olympic Games. They only played in five because they boycotted the Moscow Olympics, but still six out of ten is definitely better than zero out of nine. And if you incorporate 1990 into that one, six out of ten better than one out of ten. Even my math tells me that. So there's a lack of funding, there's a lack of looking across the country to find talent, there's a lack of leadership, and the last thing I want to talk about is the opposite of a lack of competition, because I think there is increased competition in two different ways. Number one, when we look at the domestic leagues, for a large chunk of the time period we're focusing on, the American Soccer League was the primary league, albeit, again, only semi-professional. The arrival of the NASL changed that, but while the leagues shift to focusing on the acquisition of big names helped bring some name recognition to soccer, it's why Pele was partying at Studio 54, and we know all about the Cosmos and certain other NSL teams for those big names they had, it came at the expense of helping develop domestic talent. We don't hear as much about the big name American stars of that time period. Instead, it's the big names I've mentioned previously. At the same time, we have competition 
elsewhere, not from a soccer landscape, but from a broader sports landscape. The second name of the federation, as I mentioned previously, the United States Soccer Football Association, and the resulting name change sort of are a good reminder of this, of the emergence of American football, as well as baseball already being wildly popular, basketball expanding as well, the professionalization of those sports, the fact that they were drawing on domestic talent as opposed to globally known basketball or football players helped cement their importance and relevance in this country. In addition, the idea of quote-unquote traditional American sports like baseball and football starts to become standardized around this time period, which is when soccer gets marginalized as a sport played by foreigners, immigrants, and socialists. I grew up with my friends who played other sports mocking me for playing communist kickball, even though that never really made sense to me because usually that was coming from kids who played baseball. And to my limited understanding, Cuba, more of a threat when it comes to baseball than soccer. I think uh, historically soccer results would prove that correct, but that's a rant for another day. For now, if we're looking for a succinct explanation of why the United States failed to qualify for the World Cup for 40 years, here is my attempt. Here we go. The standardization of World Cup qualifying, combined with a very limited number of World Cup spots for teams from North America, came at a time when soccer leadership in the United States, limited as it was by a lack of money, organizational structure, and the sheer size of the country, prioritized the Olympics at the expense of both the World Cup and the domestic growth of the sport in America. The United States obviously rebounded to qualify in 1990 and did the same every year until a series of equally calamitous events, with many of the same root causes and basic explanations, which is kind of wild, meant that they once again missed out in 2018. However, the growth of Major League Soccer, the continued popularity of soccer in the United States, and the record number of Americans at clubs in the elite leagues of Europe and South America hopefully means that qualification for 2022 goes more smoothly. I think we're safe in saying that we will not go another 40 years without playing in a World Cup, especially since we've already technically qualified for the 2026 iteration because the U.S. will be there as hosts of an expanded tournament alongside Mexico and Canada. Given how many qualification campaigns historically saw those three teams playing each other so often, that feels like a fitting place to end this episode. So that about wraps it up for this episode of Soccer 101. If you enjoyed this one or any of the others in our feed, please tell a friend, please tell a family member, share them wherever you feel like, tell your dog if your dog listens to podcasts, that works too. If you have suggestions for topics, feel free to send an email or shoot us a tweet. But for now, I've been Taylor Rockwell. This has been Soccer 101. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be right back. 